Welcome to another edition of Cape Fear Valley's Making Rounds Live on WIDU 1600 AM and the all-new 99.7 FM WIDU. The We Do Radio Network, WAGR in Lumberton, WYDU in Red Springs, and WEWO in Laurenburg. Now, in addition to broadcasting across the airwaves, we're also streaming live on Facebook by way of Cape Fear Valley's Facebook page. So we want to officially welcome the Facebook uh, viewers this morning. And if you miss any segment of this show, or if you would like to check out any previous shows, what you can do is you can find them on Cape Fear Valley's Facebook page because we have discussed some very interesting topics. Now remember, Cape Fear Valley's Making Rounds Live. We air every second and fourth Tuesday of the month. And we would like to thank Wes and Sandy Cookman for partnering with us to bring this vital information to the community. Now, the purpose of this show is to bring you information on health and wellness. This is not a show that's intended for you to self-diagnose. If you suffer from anything that we may discuss on the show, please find yourself a healthcare professional. Because remember, at Making Rounds Live, we believe that a healthy community is a strong community. And finally, if you have any questions about today's topics and you don't have access to a computer, you can always call 483-6111 and leave the question with the amazing ladies at the front. You don't need to leave your name. Um, just get those questions to us while we have the expert in the studio today. Now, with the warm temperatures dipping into the high digits, everyone is rushing to get outside and enjoy the weather. But what you need to know is, is that with the warm temperatures come summertime dangers that you need to be aware of. So. Today, we are going to have a detailed conversation with Dr. Michael Zappa. And Dr. Zappa, he is the president of Highsmith Rainey Specialty Hospital, the chief of emergency services, and associate medical officer for Cape Fear Valley Health. And uh, we're going to talk to him today about heat exhaustion, heat stroke, tick bites, snake bites, food poisoning, and what happens when you go to the emergency department and much, much more. So for those of you who don't know, Dr. Zappa was our very first guest on Cape Fear Valley's Making Rounds Live. What has it been, about two or three years ago now, Darvin? And we want to officially welcome him back to the show today. So, Dr. Zappa, thank you so much for being back with us today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, I'm excited to share some of the things to watch out for in the summer uh, as we all get out there and enjoy the lovely weather. All right. Now, first, let's start with heat-related illnesses. We're going to talk about heat cramps, heat exhaustion, and heat stroke. Now, first, let's talk about heat cramps. Um, what exactly happens to our body and when should we go and seek medical help? So the easiest way to think of heat illness is to really look at it as a continuum. You can go from heat cramps to heat exhaustion to actual heat stroke. So the symptoms kind of build on each other. Heat cramps is very basically just as it sounds. You're outside either just relaxing or exerting yourself 
and your muscles cramp up. And those could be muscles in your arms and legs, but could also be the muscles of your abdomen. It's usually related to dehydration and electrolyte imbalance. What you need to do is get out of the heat and hydrate. Most times you can treat that on your own, not having to come to a hospital. But if symptoms don't resolve with simple hydration, then of course you would need to seek medical attention for potential IV fluids. As you move from heat cramps, and you don't always have to get heat cramps before you get to the point of heat exhaustion. Heat exhaustion is what we'll see more often. We're out there either enjoying the sun, you get a little sunburn, you may take in a little alcohol, and all of a sudden you're getting very sweaty, profusely sweaty. You may even notice some palpitations. You get up, you start to feel a little dizzy or lightheaded, maybe a little nauseated. Well, now you've really get to the point of heat exhaustion. You need to get out of the heat, cool yourself off. Cooling yourself off means, you know, perhaps cold rags to the head, some ice packs around the neck, sometimes actually, you know, in the areas of the armpits to help really cool you down and hydrate. If the symptoms resolve 15, 20 minutes after you're able to do that, great. Just avoid the heat for the rest of the day and keep up your hydration. Mm -hmm. But if after you're in a cool environment, you've started to cool, you've taken in some liquids, and you still feel your heart racing, you're nauseous, it's time to come get care. The other piece is the difference between heat illness and heat stroke. Mm -hmm. It's all those things that we experience with heat illness, but now you're at the point where your body has stopped sweating. So you've lost that amount of liquid that you can't even sweat anymore, Mm -hmm. and patients get either confused or unconscious. That has to be a 911 call, Mm -hmm. and you need to be treated in the emergency department. So what I'd like to touch on though, in addition to kind of that description that we just went through, Mm -hmm. is how do we avoid it? Because the prescription is not, you know, spend the entire summer in your house with the air conditioning going. Even though there's nothing wrong with that. That's what I <laughs> So, you know, if you're particularly heat sensitive, of course, that's always, that's always a great option. But let's talk about those that have to be outside for work. First is if you've got the option to work earlier or later in the day, do it. There is a big difference between what the heat is like and what the sun is like between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. So for those of us that like to do weekend projects, get out there early or wait till later on, you know, you'll be better off. The other thing is plan breaks. So again, whether you're just, you know, doing stuff around your house or whether this is your job Monday through Friday, have scheduled breaks. And by those breaks, you get into the shade at least potentially get into the air conditioning and hydrate. Hydrate, 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 because dehydration is really one of the keys that causes all of those problems with heat illness. So that's really the way to prevent it. And just realize that if you get sunburn, if you take in too much alcohol, if you're on certain medications, particularly medicines for anxiety and depression, All of those things have the side effects of making you dehydrate more quickly. 
So just be aware of that when you're going to spend time outside. All right. And I want you to stress again about alcohol because I know everyone, um, pig, picnics, you have alcohol. Barbecues, you have alcohol. Um, ball games, you have alcohol. So stress to them again um, for those people who think, well, I'll just get a cold beer or a cold one when I get to the stadium. That's not a good idea. Correct. That's not the cure. So realize that you're more sensitive to alcohol, and alcohol makes you more sensitive to the heat during these summer months. So just be aware of that. And when you're feeling overheated, you know, as attractive as that cold beer might look, <laughs> what you really need is you either need just plain water mm -hmm. or you need one of those sports drinks that has water with electrolytes. All right. Now, let's talk about food poisoning because everyone, once again, as I said earlier, picnics, barbecues. Um, any advice on how we can avoid food poisoning during the summer? A very good thing to keep in mind is you've got to cook the food. We can be out having a barbecue and you know, everybody's waiting to eat. So make sure that the food is cooked thoroughly. Second, you have to be aware of the salads that are mayonnaise-based or cheese-based. If you leave them out for more than 30 minutes in a hot summer day, it's time to discard them. So what you have to make sure is that everyone gets served and then they get put in a cooler. We kept on ice, not on that pretty picnic table all afternoon for people to pick on. You're just, you're asking for trouble. The other is basic hygiene when it comes to cooking and cooking utensils. You know, sometimes we're gonna go off and have a great picnic in some park and we didn't take every kind of fork and knife that we'd have in our kitchen at home. What you have to be aware of is if you just use that fork and knife to cut up the raw chicken before you put it on the grill. You can't just go then, oh, well, that's the same set of utensils you're gonna have to eat the food once it's cooked because you've got contamination there. So pay attention to the plates, the cups, and you know the cooking utensils that you use outside. And if we keep those things in mind, I think that'll decrease the chance of turning a fun event into something that you feel pretty miserable at the end. Exactly. Now, let's go back to uh, dehydration because you mentioned hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. How does a person know that they're dehydrated? How, how do we know? So, first of all, even if you feel perfectly fine, if you've been out in the heat, in the summer heat for two hours, you're dehydrating even with no symptoms, because you're gonna sweat even if you're not dripping wet. But the other things beyond that, the time, is if you're sweating a lot, a lot more than usual, you're dehydrating. If you start feeling palpitations or you just check your pulse and it's rapid, you're dehydrated. If your mouth is dry, you're dehydrated. Those are the early symptoms and things we need to watch for. Okay, wow. And Dr. Zappa, if I may ask, what if, like, I've been outside all day and I've been sweating all day and then I'm still outside but I stop sweating, that's a 
bad sign, is it not? Correct. So as we talked about the three common types of heat illness, okay, it's heat cramps, heat exhaustion, and heat stroke. So in the heat exhaustion, you're still sweating. Your body is trying to cool you off. That's the whole purpose of sweating is to cool you off. And you may get a little lightheaded, you may get nauseous, you may get cramps, but you're in the heat exhaustion stage. If you get to the point where you've gone from sweating profusely and then you're not sweating anymore and you're confused, sleepy, anything like that, that's heat stroke. So at that point, yes, you're in trouble. You need some emergency care. Okay. Now, um, food poisoning. I got to go back to that because this question just hit me. Um, what if we think if we think we have food poisoning? What do we need to do? I mean, I know we don't need to just sit at home and and suffer. <laughs> what do we need to do? So you know, food poisoning usually manifests itself with any combination of three symptoms. You can get abdominal cramps, you can get nausea and vomiting, and you can get diarrhea. So what you need to do really depends on the severity of your symptoms. So if you're experiencing some cramps, some nausea, some loose stool, you can put yourself on a liquid diet for 12 or 24 hours and let the symptoms pass. But if the cramps are intense, if the vomiting is persistent, that you can't keep any liquids down, well then you need to go either to an urgent care or an emergency department where you can get some intravenous hydration. And again, symptoms are usually just treated mm -hmm. to keep you hydrated and the body will defend itself and the infection runs its course, mm -hmm. usually 24, 48 hours. All right, now, um I read this past weekend, because as a matter of fact, I talked about it, um, that I read that Wake County is leading the state in snake bites. Now, first of all, that blew my mind because it was Wake County. And second, what do we need to do if we are bitten by a snake? So to start with, the statistic you quoted is accurate. So Wake County wow. is leading the state, but more importantly, yeah. North Carolina leads the nation Whoa. in snake bites. I didn't, <laughs> I'm glad I didn't know that. So, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, and you know, the obvious question is why? That how was did the first we question. how did we win this this honor? And particularly when you think of, you know, somewhere like Wake County, you know, populated and built up it really comes down to two things that I think are uh, making our state lead in this. Number one is we enjoy a lot of outdoor activities in the spring and in the summer, which is the time that we'll see a lot of the snakes uh, come, literally come out. So it's being in the outdoors. But the other, when you look at populated areas, we've gone ahead and built homes and apartment complexes where the snake's homes are. So even though you think you're in a quiet suburban area, you could be walking your dog and you know there's a snake that's trying to cross the sidewalk with you. Mm -hmm. So how do, we, how do we avoid these things? So really, you've got to pay attention to where it's likely that you're gonna find them. First of all, the dark. So for multiple reasons, whether you're just strolling after dinner and it's dark or you're walking your dog, have a flashlight with you. See where you're walking. 
if you're keeping you know a wood pile or you've got some of your property with high grass be careful as you're walking through there use a little stick to guide yourself don't be sticking your arms and legs blindly into dark places because snakes like to live there you know people have found snakes popping out of their barbecue when they lift them up they have found them you know in the high grass because they've let a month or so go by and haven't cut the far part of their yard mm -hmm. so you've got to pay attention to that so you don't want to be running through you know the high grass in the woods at night without lights and not seeing you know where your arms and legs are going that being said the majority of snakes in the state of north carolina are not venomous so a, a bite from a snake that is not venomous is really of no concern, other than a little bit of superficial scratch and potential risk for you know, skin infection. So there are 38 species of snakes in North Carolina, oh. only six of which are venomous. Six, six of how many? 38. <laughs> Only six. Only six, everybody. <laughs> but, you know, oh snakes are afraid of humans, though. No, yes. no, they're not. <laughs> Guarantee you, I, I am more afraid of them than they are of me. So, in most situations, if you encounter them, if you've not put your hand or foot directly on top of them or disturbed them, they're going to see you, and they're going to go the other direction. Okay, well, I'm glad to hear that. Now, um, let's talk about ticks. Before we get these okay, snakes, I'm sorry. No problem. So, well, let's say out of those six, how, how do you know if you got bitten by a, a poisonous snake? Right. So, years ago, uh, in an emergency medicine, they used to uh, try to teach us, make sure you identify the snake. Yeah. And you know, tell the person that had gotten bit, well, you know, bring, bring the dead snake in so we can see it. <laughs> no. We obviously don't advise that because there are multiple instances of second bites. So, you know, if you can get a look at it, that can help because there are some distinguishing characteristics. But I would think most of us, if we're bitten, you're just gonna know that, you know, it was a snake. So what you really need to look for, if you can't describe the snake, is look at what happened to you. It'll generally be a, you know, an arm or a leg. You may see a couple of puncture wounds. So even if you were bitten by a venomous snake, he's got to bite you, grab onto you, and then inject the venom. So it has to, he's gotta hold on there for a little bit in order to inject the venom. So over half of even venomous snake bites, we don't get injected with the venom. So even if it was a bad snake, it was kind of, oh, you saw it, you moved your arm, leg, and they're gone. So what you do is you watch what happens. So if you have something that looks like a couple little puncture wounds and it's really not that painful and there's no swelling, you watch it. If it starts to swell, you start to feel numbness and tingling, then you come to the emergency department and we'll try to watch it and figure out what goes on. Okay. And again, because a lot of times, even with the venomous snakes, you don't need treatment. In cases where you were envenomated though, we do have anti-venom and we can get that and that's, what, that's how people are treated and their lives are saved. If you've got a question and you've really had the ability to look at the snake, you know, then, and you're not sure and you're feeling well, <laughs> call poison control. And that number is 
800-222-1222. So 800-222-1222. And they have experts who, if you're able to describe what you're experiencing or able to describe the snake, can help guide you as to what you need to do next. All right. You got that, everybody? 800-222-1222. All right? Well, what about the heart attack? Because in my wife's case... <laughs> really? Are we going there? Really? <laughs> but he is telling the truth. What are we supposed to be about the heart attack that ensue that happens after the snake bite? <laughs> okay. Uh, tick bites. Um, because I've read that uh, we're we're dealing with a lot of ticks this season. And I know that ticks carry something called Lyme disease. And um, how do we know, first of all, if we've been bitten by a tick? Um, and second, what is Lyme disease? Okay. So ticks in North Carolina can carry Lyme disease. They can also cause another disease called Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, So even though we're not in the Rocky Mountains. It, it exists uh, here in our state. And, and those are a couple of tick-borne infections. So ticks are little tiny animals that like to adhere to dark places on your skin, usually skin folds. So groin, uh, in the scalp behind the ear, kind of armpit, anywhere that, where there's skin folds. So let's talk a little bit about how it happens and the prevention first. Mm -hmm. So we see it this time of year because we're outdoors. We're going through the woods and things like that. So important thing is when you come home from being outside, shower and just check and make sure there's, there's nothing there. You feel a little strange bump, have someone in your family look at it. If it does look like it's potentially a tick, what you do is you get a tweezer and you pull it. goodness the things we talk about the end of commercial breaks uh welcome back to another edition of cape fear valley's making rounds live on 1600 a.m and the all-new 99.7 fm widu the we do radio network and of course we're streaming live on cape fear valley's facebook page now uh we're talking with dr michael zappa this uh morning and dr zappa uh let's talk about asthma sufferers during the summertime um i know i'm an asthma sufferer i have a very hard time during the summer um it's between the heat and the pollen um is there anything that i can do other than staying in the house all day to uh, ward off an asthma attack. Unfortunately, both the heat, the pollen, and pollutants are all higher in the summer, and they're all triggers for asthma. So you've got to keep that in mind. Everybody will figure out their own individual tolerance to say, okay, hey, I can be outside for an hour. At this point, I can do two. No, I can't do that much. I can go back out when it's, when it's later in the day. And you've just got to learn your body and listen to your body. Don't think, well, I'm just gonna push it, it's gonna pass. No, if you feel like that, you need to come back indoors in the air conditioning. 
The other point is, remember, lots of people who have mild asthma may get their attacks in the summer because of the heat and the allergens out there. So make sure when you're traveling, take your inhaler because oftentimes that's where we'll see patients wind up in the emergency department. They were like, well, I went to my family reunion just for the weekend. I was outside the whole time and you know, my asthma doesn't act up too much so I didn't pack my inhaler. And Guilty. here they go and I'm seeing them and they were barely able to get those sentences out to me. And I'm like, don't worry, we're gonna take care of you. But potentially if they would have carried their inhaler when they traveled, and maybe stepped into the cool when they were feeling, you know, it start mildly, they could have avoided a visit to the emergency department. Okay. Now, drowning. Um, seeing a lot of news about uh, babies drowning in pools, and uh, we've lost a lot of um, very well swimmers um, due to rib currents. So um, talk to us about drowning and, and what we need to do to avoid it. And Absolutely. Uh, drowning is a horrible summer tragedy. Most of the time can really be avoided. So let's talk about the rip currents and the beach. You're right. Most of the time it happens to the strong swimmers because they think, I know how to handle myself. I can deal with it in this surf. Pay attention to the flags, pay attention to the lifeguards, and just be smart and look at what's out there. Because any of us, no matter how great a swimmer or what kind of shape you're in, your muscles will reach the point of exhaustion and you will not be able to fight against that current anymore. So it's not a question of strength and prowess. Mm -hmm. Now let's look at the swimming pools in our homes. We gather for a family event, everyone's got kids of assorted ages, it's hot, we all wanna be in the pool. First bit of advice is designate an adult lifeguard. And I don't mean that they have to necessarily be CPR certified, but someone who is not engaged in conversation and eating their meal, whose turn, and whether you do it for an hour at a time, I'm watching the pool. I'm watching the kids because these tragedies happen when everybody just goes, oh, well, let's all go inside and have a piece of cake and let's sing happy birthday. And you didn't realize that the two-year-old was not accounted for for 10 or 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then you go back outside and you see someone floating. So that is the best thing to remember at gatherings. So whether you're talking about pools or lakes, if there are children involved, some adult has to have the responsibility to be paying attention to that. Let's look at the day-to-day -day for those people that have pools. I strongly advocate for pool fences or alarms because it always happens when you least expect it. Nobody intends for these tragedies. But it's, oh, well, I never let the little one out there without us. Well. Unfortunately, somehow they got there. So just really be aware. It's not something that you can sit and say, well, that wouldn't happen to me. I'm not that careless. No. It could happen to anyone's family. And the only way to prevent it is by everybody paying attention. Mm. Okay. Uh, you got that, ladies and gentlemen? All right. Now, um, let's go in. Let's talk about the emergency, emergency department. 
Now, I want to tell our listeners from the start, your questions are welcome, but we can't talk about a specific case due to something known as HIPAA laws. Um, those laws are in effect for your protection. Now, if there is something specific that you would like to address, um, we can refer you to uh, patient relations department. Um, but we will attempt to answer some of the main general questions regarding the emergency department. And um, Dr. Zappa, you already know uh, people complain about the wait times at the emergency room. Um, let's talk about what happens when we first get to the emergency department. Of course. So we all know that to every person, your emergency is the most important. And so oftentimes it's hard to be patient. It's hard to be a patient when you're forced to wait. <coughs> so let me start by saying we work continuously to try to diminish that weight. And sometimes we're more successful than others. But the first thing that happens before you're going to wait at all is you get seen by a triage nurse who takes your vital signs and determines why you are here. And remember what triage is. Triage literally means to sort. So we know that every patient can't walk right in and go right into a bed and have the doctor see them immediately. So we know we're gonna have to sort. And we don't sort by the order of who got here first. We sort by the order of how sick or what potential complications could happen. Next, what'll happen after you've been triaged, so you've been sorted into various acuity levels, then you'll have a medical screening exam started. Most of the time that may be started by a physician assistant or nurse practitioner, or sometimes the doctor himself. And what the medical screening exam is, is that is testing to determine what type of emergency exists. So whether it's something minor that we're gonna give you a prescription and you get to go home, or whether we need additional testing. And the medical screening exam, when the wait is long, we start that out front so that during the time you're in the waiting room, if you need x-rays or scans or ultrasounds or blood tests, that we're taking advantage of that time and doing that. So that when you do get to a room, the physician has the results in order to help put the picture together of what's going on with you at a particular date and time. So those, uh, so the listeners out there that, that say, well, I'm just going to call uh, the ambulance and I'll go in by ambulance and I'll get seen quicker. That's not the case necessarily. Correct. You know, we encourage people to use the 911 system appropriately, but it doesn't guarantee that you get to the front of the line. Because just as people who come into the emergency department front door get triaged, the ambulances, so to speak, are coming in the back door and they get triaged as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, oftentimes when patients take an ambulance uh, as a taxi, they wind up joining everyone else in the waiting room. It's based on what's going on with the patient. And that's a high price taxi too, people. Indeed. Yeah. So let's, let's go back to the, the waiting room again. So you said that people 
um, after the, the, the triage and the medical screening, which are two different things that's happening when you, once you go in there, if you end up back out in the waiting room after all that, that doesn't mean that, you know, you're, well, we're not worried about your illness. Or, you Correct. Know, just, you know. So that's a, a great point to, to emphasize. What it really means is right now there's not a room in the main part of the emergency department for you. What it means is that you're sick, but there's somebody else a little sicker occupying that bed who either has to get admitted upstairs or finish their treatment and go home. And you could find on different days and different times of day, you have a particular problem, you may get right to a room, and on another day, you might not, because it's all relative to the other people that are there. One point that I'd, I'd like to make in particular regard to the emergency department at the medical center, we're the busiest emergency department in the state of North Carolina, mm. and we're in the top 20 busiest emergency departments in the country. And there are over 4,500 ERs in this nation. Mm. So we deal with lots and lots of people every day, and our goal is to be able to make every one of them safe. All right. Yeah, and because of the health insurance situations and everything with health care, a lot of folks use the emergency department as their primary care. Can we right? talk about, because I hear the music, oh, so that okay. means we have to go into break. I can't hear Valley's making rounds live. We'll make sure you stay close. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we are entering the final segment of Cape Fear Valley's Making Rounds Live on WIDU 1600 AM, the all-new 99.7 FM WIDU, the We Do Radio Network, and, of course, Cape Fear Valley's Facebook page. Now, we have a very special guest in the studio, Dr. Michael Zappa, who is president of Highsmith Rainey Specialty Hospital. He is also chief of, of emergency services and associate chief medical officer at Cape Fear Valley Health. Now, um, Darvin, you go ahead and kick off this segment. Yeah, I just wanted uh, how, you know, we were talking about the, the folks in the emergency room and all that. And I was, do people use the emergency room more as primary care now? Is that what's going on? That's, a, that's part of the problem. But when we look at it, that's probably less than 10% of the patients that we see. So there are some that, you know, there are problems that could get handled by a primary care physician and maybe for convenience sake or the lateness of the hour or the weekend yeah. wind up uh, coming to us. So some of it's for convenience, but some of it is, you know, life necessity. Some people don't get sick days at work. Mm -hmm. Some people have to wait to get seen till nine o'clock at night. Some people can only get seen on a Sunday. So it's not always people's fault. It's right. the challenges of life. And you know we're proud to be able to take care of people 24 seven. But one of the things where the big opportunity is for primary care 
is to make sure that all of us as patients have primary care physicians and go see them regularly because lots of problems that wind up in the emergency department that are emergencies could have been handled much easier by the primary care physician who would have caught it and prevented it and we wouldn't have had to have an emergency. Understood. All right, so um, someone had said that um, I come in for a stomach ache. They do a ton of tests. I think they're just trying to jack up my bill. What would you say to that person, Dr. Zappa? The testing that we do depends on the presentation that the patient has, as well as their medical history and their individual risk factors. For example, I might see an 18-year-old who was at a family picnic and tells me he ate the potato salad that had been out for three hours, and now his stomach hurts and he can't stop vomiting. Okay. I don't need a ton of tests to treat him. I'm going to give him an IV, some fluid, and some medicine to stop his nausea, and in a few hours he's going to go home feeling very happy. He won't be eating solid food for a few days, but he'll feel better than when he got in. On the other hand, if I see a 60-year-old female who's got diabetes and had three prior surgeries on her abdomen that comes in with right-sided pain, that's going to take a CAT scan and blood tests and observation to determine, yes, she might just have food poisoning too, but I don't know if there's a tumor there, if there's an appendix problem, if it's an ovarian problem. There are so many things that could go on, and that's why we're very glad that, you know, 70% of the patients that we see in the emergency department, we're able to treat and release. 30% of them, we wind up keeping in the hospital, either as admissions or for observation. But a lot of those 70% get a pretty big workup but we're able to do that within six, eight hours and give them an answer that years ago would have taken days. Mm -hmm. Years ago, we would put people in the hospital and we'd say, well, let's put you in and just run everything and figure out what's going on. You know, we don't have the luxury of healthcare dollars to be able to do that anymore. So that's why some of these cases have bigger workups. And at the end, I come in and say, I got great news. You're going to be okay. You get to go home. I'll take that. Now, when does a person go to the emergency department or the emergency room, as people say, and when do they go to a primary care or urgent care? care? So we already talked about the availability. Mm -hmm. So that's got a little bit to do with it. And and we have urgent cares that are open seven days a week and some of them have extended hours. So that's, that's a good option for people to consider. So you really need to think about what kind of things we, we typically see in either one. And it's a severity. Let me give you some examples, probably the easiest way. If you're having chest pain, severe shortness of breath, if you're confused, if you've had a seizure, if you've got severe abdominal pain, if you've got broken bones that are obvious, like you see a deformity in an arm or a leg, 
Those type of things need to be taken care of in an emergency department. They're going to need advanced diagnostics and could potentially need the care of some specialists that we have on call in the emergency department. If, on the other hand, you feel like you've got the flu, you've got a fever, you don't really know why, you've got a cough, or you think you have bronchitis, there's a rash, a simple laceration, you need your meds refilled, your asthma flared up a little bit. You think you sprained your ankle, but maybe you broke it, you're not sure. Those are the kind of things that can easily be taken care of in urgent care. And typically, the urgent care waits and the total time much less than in the emergency department. All right. Darvin, was there anything that you wanted to, before I no, asked? And it probably cost you a little less, too. Correct. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Just a little bit. All right. Well, Dr. Zappa, well, before uh, we close out the show, was there anything that you wanted to stress to our listeners, something that we may not have uh, hit or something we may have overlooked? No, I think we really hit on a lot of things uh, that are important uh, for the summer. The one other piece that I will uh, put out there is remember summer is time when people are going to enjoy themselves. They're going to get on the road and drive. Do not drink and drive. Mm. Have a designated driver. Enjoy yourselves, Mm -hmm. but don't get behind the wheel when you've been drinking. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we have had the past hour, we have been talking with Dr. Michael Zappa, who is the president of Highsmith Rainey Specialty Hospital. Oh, anything special going on over at Highsmith that we need to ask about before we close out? Well, Highsmith uh, continues to be our long-term acute care hospital, but we also have one of the urgent cares featured at Highsmith, and we have a full surgical suite where we specialize in our all our eye surgeries are done at Highsmith, and we have a growing breast reconstruction program. Wow. Excellent. That's I excellent. That. I didn't know that either. Can we bring him back to talk about the specialties? Anyway, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> Dr. Michael Zappa, president of Highsmith Rainey Specialty Hospital, chief of emergency services and associate chief medical officer at Cape Fear Valley Health. And uh, we've been spending the past hour talking about uh, summertime, what you need to watch out for, the dangers of summertime. So basically, enjoy yourself, but just stay alert. That's that's the <laughs> bottom line. And uh, remember that uh, we will be back with you in two weeks. That is going to be Tuesday, June 25th. And uh, remember, if you have any topics that you would like for us to discuss on the show, you can drop us a line at Cape Fear Valley's Facebook page, or we're still trying to utilize a Twitter account. So uh, drop us a line at Twitter, which is at Cape Fear Valley. Yes, sir. Before you sit down, I just want to, the next show like we, we have a member of the leadership team here today with Dr. Zappa. Mm-hmm. Um, the next show, we're going to have the leader of the leadership team, uh, Mike Nagowski, CEO, will be here, along with Mr. Phil Wood, who's the CIO of the health system. Wow. 